If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn again uh, this morning with me to the book of Mark. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have some uh, Bibles available, as always, on the back table that you uh, can grab. Uh, you also can follow along in the insert found in your bulletin. Uh, as you're turning to Mark chapter 9, which is where we are this morning, I want to remind you uh, where we are in this account of the life of Jesus. Uh, some of you haven't been here in a few weeks. We uh, Two weeks ago, uh, before last week when Pastor Voles was preaching uh, in this pulpit, we were on the mountain. Remember, Jesus had taken three of his closest followers uh, to the mount, to the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's been come, uh, as it's uh, come become known as, and uh, Jesus there revealed to these three his glory. His deity through, through blinding light, through this incredible presence of the Old Testament saints who have gone before through, through Moses and, and through Elijah, Jesus revealed to Peter, James, and John indeed who he was. And it was a true, we would call, mountaintop experience for these men. So much so that Peter was ready to just camp out. And let's just soak this in. Jesus, you want me to make a couple tents for us? We can just relax. We can enjoy this for a bit. And Jesus said, no. This wasn't glory that was to be had in fullness yet. No, there was still suffering to come. And as we're going to find out this morning, there is still the reality of brokenness in the world that needs to be dealt with. And so just like, just like Moses, you know, Jesus was there with Moses and Elijah, just like Moses returned from meeting the Lord on Mount Sinai, and what did he come to at the bottom of the mountain? He came to his people in rebellion, and he had to deal with that. So Jesus comes from the mountain and the glory of God revealed there to suddenly now he has to deal with what has gone on in his absence. And that's where we are this morning as we pick up this narrative and work our way through this great account of Jesus. This is an account that's found not just in Matthew, it's found, uh, excuse me, not just in Mark, but it's found in Matthew. It's also found in Luke, but it's Mark, interestingly enough, the one known for brevity and wanting to pick up the pace and just work his way through things. It's Mark that gives us uh, much more detail than the other two gospel writers. And so listen as I read Mark chapter 9. If you would stand with me, Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14, and we're going to read down through verse 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up and they greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought Jesus the boy. When the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to this account of Jesus The disciples have already confessed him as the Christ. The portrait that that Mark is painting for the disciples and for us is becoming clearer and clearer every day. And yet there's still so much to learn, not just about who he is, but about what it means to follow him. And so as we come to this account this morning, sure, this is an account, it's an example again of the power of Jesus, right? The forces of darkness are no match for Jesus, amen. And yes, this is another example of the compassion of Jesus. I can only imagine as a father who sees his son suffering, the the desperation, the, the need, the urgency, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't even bat an eye. Jesus will restore him. Jesus will make him whole. What a compassionate Savior. But even if, even with those two strokes highlighted on this portrait of Jesus, the compassion and and the power of Jesus. I think Mark and the Holy Spirit who inspired these words, I think they want us to know more. They want to teach us something else. And specifically, I think this is an opportunity for us to consider two things that are central to our lives as followers of Jesus. Faith and prayer. Faith and prayer. Mark and the Holy Spirit this morning want to encourage us what it means to follow Jesus, to walk with him. Whether that be in the first century as the disciples, whether that be today, here and now. So there are two truths that I'd like us to zero in this morning on and and meditate on as we work our way through this passage. We're going to spend most of our time on this first one. And it's simply this, Jesus 
calls you away from your self-sufficiency. Jesus calls you away from your self-sufficiency. I got this. No, 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 I, I got this. Right? Those, are, those are three words that in our pride and in our desire for achievement and for accomplishment, we love to have roll off of our lips. I got this. I know as a father, I love for my kids to say, I got this, Dad. As long as the occasion and the timing of my kids saying such a phrase is appropriate. Because I equally love, even more so, love for my, my children to, to say, Dad, I need your help. Dad, I need your help. You see, what I want us to focus on for a few minutes is that as children of God, as sons and daughters of the Most High, with Jesus as our elder brother, this is the basic posture of our existence. Not, I got this, but Dad, I need help. Besides Jesus and the three men, the three disciples that he is coming down the mountain with, Peter, James, and John, there are basically three primary sets of characters in this scene, right? There is the remaining disciples, the nine that Jesus left behind. There is the stalking scribes who have been in the shadows looking for an opportunity to pounce on Jesus, to pounce on his disciples, to frame him in some way. And then there is this desperate father and his sick son. And what I want you to see is that all three of them, all three sets of characters, and particularly the first two, the scribes and the disciples, are reminded this morning to look away from themselves and to fix their eyes on Jesus. And as God's word comes to us this morning, I want us to see that I think we, every one of us in this room, has a little bit of every, every set of characters we have a little bit of each of them in each of us. Let's walk through the story. As Jesus and his three closest return to regroup with the others, they see that there is a crowd that's formed. And there's an argument that is active in this crowd between the disciples and the scribes. Now, we're not told by Mark what the content of the argument is that Jesus and Peter and James and John walk into. But through the context of the story, I think we can piece it together what this argument was all about. Think about it. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John with him on this private excursion up the mountain. He had left the other nine disciples behind. And while they're up on the mountain, this desperate father comes looking for Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't here, the disciples say. But I've got this son who is sick, and he's not just sick in terms of a physiological disease. No, he is terrorized. He is traumatized by an evil spirit. Can you do something? Please help my son. The father had no doubt heard of the, the gentle healer that was wandering around the countryside doing incredible, amazing things for parents just like him. 
And he came to find him. When he he wasn't available, well, the next best thing is his disciples, his followers. And don't you think, I mean, just put yourself into the humanity of these disciples that were left behind. Don't you think that these men were eager to show themselves worthy? We got this, Jesus. After all, they they had done it before. They were capable followers of the way. Jesus had sent them out in Mark chapter 6. It's a passage we look at. Jesus had sent them out to cast many demons out, to heal those who were sick. Why would this be any different, they think? And so they tried. And they failed. Nothing happened. Well, you can imagine these scribes who are looming in the shadows. They smell blood. They jump all over this. See, you guys have no authority to do what you're doing. You guys are a bunch of frauds. Your teacher is a fraud. Just another example of why you need to be gone. And this is the context that Jesus walks into after being in the presence of Moses and Elijah and revealing his glory to his closest followers. This is the mess that he has to untangle. And it clearly breaks Jesus' heart. And he expresses it in three simple words. Oh, faithless generation. Oh, faithless generation. It's this declaration of of weariness and of, of heartache. It's a recognition that despite his teaching, despite all the signs that have accompanied his teaching, his own people aren't getting it. They aren't seeing who he is. Rather than accepting who he is and looking to him and letting him be enough, they've got to do it on their own. Just think about the three sets of characters. First, we've got the scribes, right? These religious leaders that unfortunately are blinded by their own religiosity, right? They've got this. We know the law. We've been teaching the law for generations. Heck, we've even added to the law to beef it up, make it a little easier to follow, make it a little more specific for the lives of our people. We know how to follow God. We know how to follow We know how to please him. And so the scribes, they try, and they try, and they try. And they're failing. They remind us that grace, grace sometimes is simply too hard because it's too easy to swallow. Jesus says, just come to me. No, 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 no. We know how to come. We know, what you, we know what the rules are. We got this. See, self-righteousness for the scribes is a powerful drug. The pride in their hearts eats the opportunities to show themselves worthy, and it's no different for us. It's no different for us. We live in a world of souls, brothers and sisters, our own included who try to live this way in a million different ways, both religious ways and non-religious ways. 
either by religious rules and by religious righteousness, we say, we got this, God, here we come, or by secular goodness, I got this, here we go. And Jesus calls the religious, he calls the non-religious alike to leave self-sufficiency behind and look to him. That's the scribes. But maybe most of us in here, we don't identify with the scribes. How about the disciples? Let's look at them for a minute. Their core issue was not that they misunderstood who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus was. They had confessed, you are the Christ. But they still had this tendency to forget that they constantly needed him. You see, the disciples' issue is self-sufficiency as well, but it's self-sufficiency in a lesser form, we might say. Mark tells us what the problem was. Yes, they acted in Jesus' name. That was good. But what does Jesus say they failed to do in verse 29? They failed to pray. Now remember, this account, Mark's account, we believe is given to us through the eyes of Peter, who told this to Mark, and Mark wrote this account down. And so Peter, where was Peter during this whole event? Well, he was piecing together, he pieced together this event, not witnessing it firsthand because he was on the mountain. Matthew, though, was there. Matthew was at the bottom of the mountain. Matthew was one of the ones left behind. And so if we turn to Matthew's account, we read in Matthew 17, 20, that Jesus says, because of your little faith. See, the failure of the disciples was a failure to pray, a failure to believe, to trust, to depend. And who can blame the disciples, really? I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Who can blame them? They, they had done this kind of thing before. They knew the process. They had experience. But it was exactly that experience that tempted the disciples to lose their dependency. Jesus reminds them that knowing the words, knowing the process doesn't mean you have the power, and it's clear from the rest of the story where the power lies. The power lies with Jesus. We see this exchange between the Father where the Father seems to cast doubt after he sees the disciples fail. He casts doubt on Jesus about whether Jesus can really do anything, right? He had come in desperation, but now he's not so sure. The Father says in verse 22, if you can do anything... And Jesus is almost taken aback by that statement from the Father. I love how one commentator reworded Jesus' response, and it's in verse 23. It's almost as if Jesus says this, As regards to your remark about my ability to help your son, I tell you that everything depends on your ability to believe, not on my ability to act. All things are possible for one who believes, period. Now let's dig into this a little bit. 
My boys and I, especially me, I will confess, I'm a sucker for October baseball. I don't follow baseball very much during the year, but once it gets to October and the playoffs, I'm always compelled to to watch. And particularly this year, as the Cubs are in the World Series for the first time in 70 years, it's been fun to be a part of. And you know, we could talk a little bit as I was thinking about this. Modern sports is really a, a study in secular religion. Uh, these stadiums, these cathedrals of worship, and uh, the songs and the rituals that accompany them. But all that aside, one of the things that you see, especially at Cubs games, are these signs. We believe, right? We believe. And even you talk to some players after the games, this is not just true of the World Series, but any sporting event, you know, how did you do it? Well, We just believed in one another. We just believed in what we could do and what we could accomplish. And I listen to these things. I see these signs saying, yeah, great, you believe. Great, you have a sign that that says we believe, but can your hitters hit the Cleveland relievers? I mean, that's really where, where it comes down to. Not just your belief, but what can you do on the field? See, Jesus says this, all things are possible for one who believes, but this has become, in many circles, one of the greatest, most misused verses in the Scripture. This along with Philippians 4.13, that all things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sometimes we take these verses out of context, and we treat them like rabbit's feet, like lucky charms. See, when Jesus says this, the emphasis on the verse, what Jesus is not saying is that just you need to have more faith in in order that you might accomplish whatever greatness you want to accomplish. Whether it be a touchdown, whether it be a home run, faith has no power in and of itself. Now, the message that Jesus tells the Father is, fill yourself with more of me. Fill yourself with more Jesus, the object of that faith. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with me, Jesus says, if you are united to me, then there's no ceiling to what can be done because I'm God and I'm good. And it's not whatever you want, believe whatever you want in me. No, it's believe in me, fill yourself with me and my ways and my will and that will be done for you. See, the disciples' past success had brought with it this self-confidence that tempted them to forget about Jesus. And Jesus calls them out on it, and he calls them back to dependency. And he says, leave self-sufficiency behind. But going back to that declaration of Jesus, oh, faithless generation, I left off the, the latter part of that phrase that Jesus says, 
Because Jesus goes on, he says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You know, we read those words and they almost sound cold and, and uncaring, like, like Jesus just fed up. He just doesn't want to be here anymore. He wants to get away from us. But what we need to understand is that Jesus speaks these words as the one true, authentic believer who has ever walked the earth. Jesus is the one man, the only one who has believed, truly believed, and lived out God's promises and lived in such a way where he could only live united to the Father. And so Jesus says, come into this life that I've lived for you. Come, enjoy this reward that I have earned for you. Come and experience this intimacy of union with the Father that I have enjoyed for all eternity. Leave your self-sufficiency behind. Unite yourself to me. This is the gospel. And it doesn't get any sweeter. If we get back to the passage, these aren't mere words that Jesus is spouting. He shows he has the authority to speak such words. He's shown it on the mountain, and he shows it now because with one sentence utters, what happens? What we've seen before. The demons flee. Darkness runs for its life. Now, if we could go down a little tangent here, there are a couple interesting things about this encounter with the demonic, and I don't want to get all wrapped up in it, but Jesus says something that's interesting. He says, this kind to the disciples. This kind can only be driven out by prayer. It's almost as if there are different kinds. There are different strengths of dark forces. Jesus has given us, that's a mysterious world, the world of spiritual warfare, but it's almost as if Jesus is saying, no, there are certain things that need to be pressed into with greater urgency, with more time, with greater dependency. But I think another thing we can notice about Jesus' interaction and this whole story is the lie of the devil, the lie of Satan, whenever you are tempted, is that the road that you're tempted to go down, that is where life is found. Right? That is where satisfaction is found. That is where pleasure is found. And the other lie that we believe is that Satan is at the end of that road and he wants to see you enjoy yourself in pleasure. That he wants to see you enjoy yourself in disobedience. And here we're reminded that that's a bold-faced, flat-out lie. That Satan and his minions have one priority. It's to terrorize and to destroy you. 
And the father makes a point of saying, they tried to throw my son in the fire to burn him. They tried to throw him in the water to drown him alive. He doesn't want your good. He wants you destroyed. And so it's a reminder for us, even in this context of leaving self-sufficiency behind, of the need to hide ourselves in the power of Jesus and unite ourselves with Him. See, we're no different in our tendency to not believe in Jesus and trust in ourselves. And I'm not talking about salvation in particular. I'm talking about those 10,000 mundane moments of your lives where we don't believe that Jesus can or we don't believe that Jesus is there. And let me just help us with some common forms of unbelief, and maybe the Holy Spirit will bring to mind more in your life. Maybe your interactions with your groups in community this week will further that process of rooting out places of unbelief. But how about this? God doesn't care about me or my circumstances, and so I'm going to be anxious. It's unbelief. The Scriptures declare, Psalm 56, 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Matthew 6, oh, you have little faith. Don't be anxious. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. How about God isn't just? Can He see how I've been wronged? And so I'm going to be bitter. It's unbelief. And yet the Scriptures declare, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. It is written, vengeance is mine. Psalm 7, the psalm we read this morning, verse 10, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. How about this form of unbelief? God's timing your timing's a little off here, God. Nothing's happening. So I'm going to be impatient. But the Scriptures declare, Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul that seeks Him. And then finally, God doesn't care. He doesn't know what I need. He isn't providing, and so... I'm struggling with discontentment, and yet the Scriptures declare that I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13. You see how so many of the lies we believe and the temptations in our lives are from unbelief. And the lie, the thinking that we've got to do it on our own Brothers and sisters, these are promises to press into. These are promises to let press into you. But I know, I know I'm just like you. I know in the heat of the moment, in the eye of the storm, these promises, man, they get lost. And that's why this memorable prayer of the Father in this passage is such gold for us. 
And that's why Jesus' acceptance of this feeble prayer is even better. I believe. Help my unbelief. And it reminds us of this second truth, and that's what we're going to close with this morning. That prayer is both the fruit and the fuel of faith. Prayer is the fruit and the fuel of faith. Are you struggling to believe God's promises? Pray that. Pray that doubt in order that you might believe. Prayer is the empty hand that asked Jesus to fill it. And it's where self-sufficiency dies, and it's where continued belief is fueled. And so we just saw Jesus express frustration at, at this faithless generation. We confess our tendency to lose faith. So what does it look like when I have more faith? I pray. And, and how do I get more faith? I pray. You see how that works? Prayer is both the expression of faith as well as the engine that keeps faith going. It's the opposite of I got this, and it's exactly where Jesus wanted his disciples and everyone else to be. It's what he reminds us of this morning. Leave your self-sufficiency behind. Whether it be your own righteousness, whether it be your forgetfulness of his promises, and cry out to him with whatever faith you can muster. Because you know what? He is sufficient. And he delights in showing himself strong in your weakness. What good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word to us this morning from your servants. Thank you for how your word pierces our hearts and, and dissects them. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue that surgery, showing us these areas of our lives where we live independent of the God we serve, where we forget about our union with Christ, our standing in Him, where we're tempted to believe lies rather than to trust in Your promises. We believe, but help our unbelief. O Spirit of God, take these truths Impress them deep into our hearts that they might change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.